0: It's lovely to come to Grace. And every time we come, we get to see baptisms. And as pastors who are working in various locations, it can be tiring and it can feel slow. And at some point, we can feel that the forward march of the gospel has stalled a little bit. But not when you come to Grace Church. And you get every uh, week to see these baptisms, and to hear testimony of lives that have been changed. And that is so very biblical. Testimony is a wonderful thing. Stories about how God picked the person out of the mire and transformed their life. And the scriptures are full of testimonies, whether it be the moral Samaritan woman who was able to go into the town and to proclaim to all those who she knew that there was a Jesus who knew her. Or whether it be Paul who was on his crusade to persecute the church, and yet he has an encounter with Christ and he becomes a missionary. Church history is littered with them too. Men like Augustine who are saved from a life of immorality to become a preacher of moral transformation. Men like Martin Luther saved from the monastery to preach Christian freedom. Men like John Bunyan who are saved from a life of cussing to be able to become one whose words are used so much to edify, to encourage, and to move forward and walk with the Lord. If you are a Christian tonight, you have a testimony. You have your own story of how God broke in and transformed your life. How he gave you an understanding of your sin, your need for the Savior, and how he made Jesus gloriously beautiful before you. Well, tonight I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. And we come to a man called Jacob a man who had experienced a world-shifting testimony. He had once been a deceiver, a trickster, a man who in the narrative of Scripture had clearly been out and out for himself. He'd been taking advantage of others, sometimes to grab what was good, but ultimately to serve himself. And in that act of grabbing for himself, most often he took from his twin brother, He left such a bitter taste in the mouth of his twin that chapter 27, verse 41 says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother. But in chapter 28, Jacob He has an encounter with God, or God has an encounter with Jacob. God breaks into Jacob's life and makes himself known, declares promises to him. And from that point forward, Jacob really is, like most of us, a bit of a fixer-upper, but one who has some level of commitment to God and some level of understanding that it's God's work in his life that he can hope in. And especially hope in the promises that God has given for his life. Now this changed man has been called by God after 20 years in exile to go home. Chapter 31 verse 3. And though that journey brought chasing from his father-in-law. And the reality of having to face his messy past. Jacob had made the long march towards home. He left with nothing, but now he was returning to the promised land with two camps worth of family and belongings. Yet, as he enters into the promised land once more, he's faced with his ugly past. And he's faced with the uncertainty of how he will be embraced. Let's read the text, Genesis chapter 32, verse 1. Genesis chapter 32, verse 1. Now Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, thus you shall say to my Lord, to Esau, Thus says your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, and have been delayed until now. And I have oxen, and donkeys, and flocks, and male and female slaves. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother, to Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps. And he said, if Esau comes to the one camp and strikes it, then the camp which remains will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh, who said to me, return to your land and to your kin, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the truth which you have shown to your slave. For with my staff only, I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him. Lest he come and strike me down with the mothers and the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your seed as the sand of the sea which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. And he took from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And he gave them into the hand of his servants every flock by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me, and put a space between flocks. And he commanded the first one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong? And where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord, to Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third. And all those who followed the flock saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold your servant Jacob, also is behind us for he said i will appease his face with the present that goes before me then afterward i will see his face perhaps he will lift up my face so the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp The last time Jacob was in the promised land, he was running away because of the damage that he had caused, the, the broken relationships he, in part, had manufactured. In particular, he had used multiple times deceit to get advantage over his twin brother, to, to win, to gain over that relationship. And because he had tried to beat Esau, Esau was determined to break him. And now he is coming home. Coming home after a very, very long time. He's had no contact with Esau for 20 years. Now, sometimes time can heal wounds but sometimes it exacerbates it. And that's what's happening in the text here. There is a danger in the air as Jacob heads home. And he knows it intently. It highlights our first point this evening. If you take notes, you can write down our first point. The effects of your past sin still face you after following God. The effects of your past sin Still face you after you follow God. Time has passed and Jacob has grown. He's not the same man that he used to be. But the past still hangs over the narrative. It still hangs in the air and will continue to be there throughout the whole chapter. You you see it coming through in some of the details regarding Jacob's actions here. You get a sense of that tension. Look at verse 3 and 4. Verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord, to Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and have been delayed until now. Now, look at what he calls Esau there in verse 4. What does he call him? My Lord. And what does he call himself in verse 4? Your servant. Now why is that interesting? Well, it's interesting because all of the activity that Jacob had been engaging in those 20 years before uh, was an activity to use deception to try and steal that title. He wanted to be the master. He wanted to be the one in charge. He wanted to be the one that had preeminence. And so even in his words, there's this subtle recognition of the wrong he had done against his brother. Look at verse 5. And I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female slaves. And I have sent to tell my Lord again that I may find favor in your sight." He sends this message ahead to Esau because he wants to find favor in his sight. That's the same phrase if you go back in Genesis. that appears in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, where we're told that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Even more shockingly, it's the same verse that we find in Genesis chapter 19, verse 19. Genesis chapter 19, verse 19, speaking of Lot, after the angels have had to twist his arm behind his back in order to get him out of the city. We read in Genesis chapter 19, 19, Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness. Now, Lot, and indeed Noah, were not deserving characters. The, the, the fever they were experiencing from God was something undeserving. It was something that bubbled out of the graciousness of God and the angels that they interacted with. And it's the same here. Uh, Jacob is not expecting grace from Esau because he gave him some camels and donkeys and whatever else. He knows he has done wrong. He's undeserving and yet he seeks mercy. Mercy not based on his merit, based on grace. Jacob isn't saying he deserves something from his brother. Rather, his request is very simply that Esau would have a merciful disposition towards him. Look at verse 6. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother, to Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you. And 400 men... Are with them. After he sends his message forward, a message comes back. But it's a message that Esau is coming to say hello with 400 men. That's not a Sunday afternoon walk. That's not a gentle hike through the mountains. That sounds completely like an army. In fact, back in Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham went to war against the five kings, he had an army of 318. Now there's 400 men coming. This is a big group. It sounds threatening. It sounds ominous. Look at verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Understandable. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks, and the herds, and the, the camels, into the two camps. It, Jacob's making a very natural response. Uh, a big, red-faced, angry man is marching towards you with his army. And so he does everything he can to try and settle the, the moment down, to, to try and protect what he can protect. He's full of a, an intense fear in this moment because he believes that a real threat is marching towards him. For verse 8 explains the reason why. Verse 8. And and he said, If Esau comes to the one camp and strikes it, then the camp which remains will escape. He he expects war. He expects violence. And he expects it because of what he knew about Esau. He, He remembers what Esau was like in the past. And you know what? His thinking wasn't wrong. Given the way things had ended, given the the death threats that had been issued, his thinking wasn't broken here. Jacob is coming back to a dangerous mess. His expectations are not unrealistic. And the reason he's coming back to a dangerous mess is because he had made a mess. He had caused so much damage. The last time he had been in town, Now he was a changed person. But the hurt he had created in the past, due to his sin, it still hurt. It still left marks. I think that's such an important lesson for us. When you become a Christian, God doesn't whitewash all the consequences of the past. Sin always leaves damage. Sometimes whenever people become Christians, that initial high dissipates when they begin to realize that there's still a lot of mess to fix. That there's still a lot of wrongs to right. That there's still a lot of issues that need to be dealt with. Because their past has caused hurts, has caused damage, and it needs to be dealt with. Jacob reminds us that trouble from even 20 years ago, lingers and can have a way of still hanging over us and it needs to be dealt with. And yet as believers, though the consequences of sin don't disappear, it is different. Because our second point tonight is you do not battle them alone. You do not battle them alone. Look look at verse 1. It says, now Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Angel means messenger. But, But this particular phrase reminds us of the vision that Jacob had back in chapter 28 at Bethel. He had had this dream where he he dreamt of the ladder between heaven and earth, and angels ascended and descended along this ladder, bringing messages, messages to God and messages from God. And it communicated to Jacob at the time that though he was about to exit the promised land, though he was about to leave the place so closely associated with Yahweh, yet God would continue to be with him. That line of connection would not be broken. In fact, that particular phrase in the Hebrew there in verse 1, the angels of God, and that particular form appears in only one other verse in Genesis. And it's in chapter 28, verse 12. Back in chapter 28, verse 12, in that, that very specific account then he had a dream. And behold, a ladder stood on the earth with its top-touching top, top, heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The very language employed reinforces the fact there's meant to be a connection we see here that we are meant to understand that that previous revelation where God had declared that he would be in contact with Jacob, that that connection would not be broken, that now we're seeing something of that repeated here in chapter 32, verse 1. And the point is very simple. Jacob is not alone. He's not alone. Look at verse 2. Then Jacob said when he saw them... This is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanim. Mahanim means two camps or two companies. And the idea is Jacob is declaring God is here amongst us. We have Camp David. Or Camp Jacob. And we have Camp God. And there's a sense of community, of togetherness going on here. Again, the idea very simply is Jacob is not alone. As he says himself, this is God's camp. It's a wonderful reminder of the difference that knowing God makes, of being a believer in this world. There are difficulties and dangers. There are effects of our sin that still need to be dealt with, and yet God is with us. We still face fears and difficulties, but we are not alone. And that reality changes everything, including how we deal with the consequences of our sinful past. The effects of your past sins still face you after following God. You do not battle them alone. And the third thing I want us to see in the text this evening is God hears your prayers. God hears your prayer. Jacob has this heavy sense of the danger that's in front of him a danger that again his past has created and he has a clear sense that god is with him and so what does he do well he does something we should all do he prays It's a wonderful reminder of the greatest resource we have as christians we can go straight to the throne of god we can go straight to the almighty who hears the one who listens to the cries of his people. Listen to the prayer there in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh who said to me, return to your land and to your kin, and I will prosper you. He begins his prayer very simply by talking about the nature of who God is. What a great place to start your prayer by focusing on the nature of the person we're talking to. He recalls the legacy of God. He was the God of Abraham. He was the God of Isaac. He had worked wonders for them. He had performed great things for them. He had kept them despite difficulties. He recalls as well the Yahweh, The the, the promise-making nature of this God. He is the God who is a covenant God and is committed to doing all that he said he would do for his people. And there even at the end of verse 9, he recalls a very specific command that God had given to Jacob. And a, a, a declaration by God that Jacob was to go back. And, and Jacob was moving in obedience. He, he recognizes that God is the one in charge. That God is the one that sits on his throne. It's a wonderful way to start your prayer. And, and then look at verse 10, what he does next. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the truth which you have shown to your slave. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps he acknowledges here his undeserving nature he's focused in verse 9 on God and now he comes back to himself and he simply acknowledges that he doesn't deserve anything he says I'm undeserving literally I am little it's a way of declaring his personal insignificance God I'm unworthy of your attention He's declaring here that he has no claim on God. God doesn't owe him. And rather what he's throwing himself upon is that loving kindness of God himself. And yet he also acknowledges that though he is undeserving, God has done so much for him. In the past, lots and lots of times in the past, God has shown profound kindness to him. The plural form of hesed is used here. That special word that speaks of God's covenant love. Here here Jacob talks about the expressions of that love. There are many, many kindnesses. Many tangible ways that your love has manifested itself in my life. God, you have shown me lots of loving kindnesses. I've experienced so many uh, kindnesses from your hands. He says it because it's true. He he experientially had left with nothing. Back in chapter 8, he didn't even have a pillow to sleep on, so he puts his head on a rock. But now he comes back with enough goods for two whole camps. He's been successful because of God's kindness to him so verse 9 God you are First 10 Lord I am undeserving and then in verse 11 again recognizing this is prayer look at the honest request that he makes deliver me I pray from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau for I fear him Lest he come and strike me down with the mothers and the children. Well, his request isn't ambiguous, is it? It's clear. It's simple. It's from the heart. He goes before God and he he unpiles all that he is feeling, the real concern that he has. He he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't try and make it sound like something different than what it is. He brings the honest request of his heart before the throne of God. Rescue me from Esau. And then look at verse 12, the conclusion. For you said, I will surely prosper you. And make your seed as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. He closes his prayer by saying, And God, you promised. He echoes back to God the promises that God has given to him. It's not something new, it's not something manipulated. It's the actual promise that God had given to him that he echoes back at the close of this prayer. He he brings the full reality of all that's going on inside before the throne of God. And, And he closes by holding on to the very real promises that God has given to him. It's a wonderful reminder that in prayer, the way you get off your knees at the end of prayer is by holding on to the truth of what God has spoken. The actual word of God. The promises that have substance. And that gives us strength to move forward. I guess whole prayer is a, an exquisite model of how we should pray when we come to God. When you come to God in difficulty, begin by focusing on who God is. Recognizing you don't deserve from him, you are undeserving. And yet bring your honest request before his throne and echo back his promises that he has given to you in Scripture. When, like David, it comes to facing your past sin, again, what a wonderful model. Uh, you, You come and you acknowledge the nature of who God is, especially how He views sin. And you come and you acknowledge your undeserving nature. It was you that did wrong, it was you that caused all this pain and brokenness. And then you pray to God and you ask for help. And you hold on to the promises of Scripture. Maybe this evening you, you, you've never prayed to God. and Tonight you need to pray for the first time. Maybe you don't know where to start. It's exactly the same. Start by praying and recognizing who God is. God, you're holy. You're perfect in all of your ways. You see me in my innermost parts and you know who I am. Acknowledge your undeserving nature. Lord, I do not deserve anything from your hands for I am a sinner. I have fallen short of your perfect standard. And bring your honest request to God. Lord, forgive me. Lord, save me. Lord, Lord, do that work in me that I cannot do myself because of Jesus Christ. And then grab a hold of the promises. John three sixteen, Lord, I know that you so love the world. That your book assures me that you sent your son. That whosoever, even I, if I believe in him, I shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Friend, prayer is not rocket science. And our Lord, his ear is turned towards all who truly cry out to him for grace and for mercy based on the work of Jesus Christ. What a model we have in the text tonight of how to pray to the Almighty. How to pray to the gracious God who hears our prayers. The effects of your past sins still face you after you follow God, but you do not battle them alone. And God hears your prayer. And lastly, it is the face of God that we should fear. It is the face of God that we should fear. When you scan your eyes down, verses 13 to 21, after such a profound prayer, we would expect it to read a little differently than it does. The reality is, Jacob says, Amen, and then he gets off his knees and he goes right back to panic. He's just like most of us. I said, I uh, to my wife, Sarah, she asked me, what are you thinking about, Andrew? And I told her, well, uh, at the moment, I'm thinking about Jacob. He, he, he prays to God in this passage, and then he, he gets up, and he goes right back to his panic. And she goes, well, I can relate to Jacob. Maybe you can relate to Jacob. You, you bring the request to God. You pour out your heart to him in desperation, and then you say, amen you go right back to all of the anxiety and worry that consumed you before. It's a reminder, isn't it, that so often there is such a deep gulf between our worship of God and our practice through the rest of the week. Jacob's attention here in the text after he prays is all consumed with the human face of his twin Esau. And the text draws attention to that by highlighting the word face. A word that so often in Hebrew is used to catch the idea of the character of the individual. This is who they are. This is their nature on display. And Jacob here, he has a fear of the face of Esau. And that face, that character of that man consumed him completely. And so in verses 20 and 21, five times in the Hebrew, that word face is used. Verse 20, may I appease his face. Literally, may I cover his face. Again in verse 20, the the present that goes before me. Literally, the gifts that go before my face. Uh, More obviously at the end there, I shall see his face. At the end of verse 20, perhaps he will lift up my face. Literally, he will raise my face. It's an idiom to forgive. That he would forgive me verse 21, the presence passed on before him. Literally, the gifts went on ahead of his face. Now, the translation is good that you hold in your hand there. The ideas of the idioms and everything are being reflected there. But the one thing we miss is face, 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 face. face because there was a face that took over the mind of this man in this moment. And it was not at this moment the face of God. It was a big, hairy, red-faced man. That was what was running around his mind. Esau, the brother he'd hurt and upset, who wanted to kill him. And Jacob was consumed with thinking about him. And he worked so hard from verse 13 onwards to try and soften the hard face that he imagined of his twin. And Jacob had a plan to try and purchase a smile that he could slap on Esau's face with donkeys and camels and cows. What the text is trying to indicate to us is that Jacob's mind was all consumed after his prayer with Esau. That's what sucked up all of his thoughts and his attention. At this moment, he would rather die than face Esau. But by the end of the chapter, something glorious takes place. He meets with God. And something much more serious and much more significant begins to consume his mind. His whole thought life was consumed and swallowed up with ideas about the nature and the person of Esau. But now something else would come. Look at the end of chapter 32, verse 30. In the rest of this glorious chapter, God comes and meets with this distressed man and wrestles with him all night. It's a glorious and mysterious section of Scripture. But the conclusion of the text there in verse 30 is, so Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face. Before face, 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 it was Esau's face. But now at the end of chapter 32, God has dealings with Jacob, this man of wobbly faith. And God uh, takes the position that he should. Jacob's thoughts get wrapped around the one place they should have been that he has seen God face to face. He has been confronted with the character and the nature of God. How often do we find ourselves like Jacket? The, the, the small things of life seem to consume and swallow up all of our thoughts. The threat of losing a job, a health check, Conflict in our family, insurance renewal quotes, small things. And yet they take all of our attention. They they sit at the front of the mind. And when we, we, we drift, it's all that we drift towards. Sometimes like Jacob, there may even be someone who wants to kill you. But even that is small compared to the idea of beholding God face to face. Standing before the holy, 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 all-seeing God. But when we understand the nature of, of the God who is with us, and the God who sees us, it rightly swallows up all of these Earthy, momentary concerns—it it overshadows them and makes them look insignificant. For compared to the fact that we stand before God, all these other things are so insignificant. The Almighty God, who holds our life in His hands, who determines our destiny—he is the one that we ultimately stand before. Sometimes we can get a sense of that holy gaze. Maybe when we come to church, like a time like this. And we, we, we try and panic and soften that gaze, for we feel judged before it. Because we are a sinful people. And we can never appease God with camels or donkeys or anything else. But somehow we think that if we just come to church if we just read more, if we just try harder, if we just do whatever it is that we do, that somehow that will disguise the true reality of our heart before him. But none of these things can appease the face of God, the God of perfect justice. Only one price can satisfy that pure and holy gaze, and it is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Remember the great scene in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus died upon the cross with two thieves beside him. One looked at Jesus simply with scorn. And hours later, he would tremble before the face of God, his judge. While the other, as he hung upon the cross, he beheld in those moments the face of a saviour and he declared to him remember me when you come into your kingdom and later on that man would behold the, the face of jesus in paradise god's face is one that no man can ultimately avoid but we can be ready ready to stand before the face of god and it starts by looking first to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. Friends, what consumes your thoughts? What's consumed the majority of your thinking today? There is no other name, and in heaven or on earth, by which you may be saved. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are persistent with your people. And even in those moments where we lose sight of Jesus and where our minds get consumed with all of the other things of this world, the other people and personnel and issues that Uh, demand our attention. We thank you, Lord, that you are a forgiving God who insists on persisting and wrestling with your people to draw our attention back to where our attention ought to be. We are so thankful, Lord, that you are one who hears our prayers and that all who come to you, you will in no way cast out. We pray, Lord, for the grace to have our minds consumed with the the face of God. May we live and act understanding and honoring the character of you, the one true God. And we pray for any tonight who do not yet know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we pray for that humbling grace that would allow them to pray that prayer of repentance and to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.